Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll begin here this evening. Lord, we thank you for your uh, watch care over us, uh, that uh, you know what's going on, that uh, even events that, uh, from our perspective, don't make any sense are not uh, out of your control. And so we, uh, even looking at prayer time this evening, some of the things going on, we uh, just are resting in the fact that you're a God that's uh, well aware of uh, all that goes on. Uh, help us this evening as we look at this book that uh, was a very vital book for uh, keeping people in the faith and uh, was one that uh, helped with that. May we understand uh, what's going on with it so that we can better understand uh, what's going on throughout uh, this book of Hebrews. And uh, this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, if you haven't gotten the sheet yet, uh, we are in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I think Philemon is still out there, but uh, we are not any longer in that one. We're in the book of Hebrews. So let's go ahead and get started with this this evening and go right into the controversy that usually is the controversy that people start with when it comes to the book of Hebrews. And that is the question of who the author is. Typically, as you read through New Testament uh, letters, which we're going to say that this is not even really a letter, though it does have a styling of a letter at the end, you would have the name of who's writing the letter and to whom it's addressed right at the beginning. And when you look at this, you go, well, okay, it starts off with God. Well, God usually is the author of all these letters. In fact, he is. Uh, so, but yeah, God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, uh, being so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So you're going, hmm, no sign of anything there that would let us know as to who the author is. But what you find as you you go through this is that there is no author listed. However, the author was familiar with Timothy. Okay, you find this at the very end where you have some closing statements that seem like makes this a letter, and it says there in verse 23, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. Um, Yeah. So they know Timothy. Uh, he knew the circumstances, the author knew the circumstances of their conversion. Okay, in the section that is uh, really the intro section to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, you have this statement in verse number 32, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Um, verse 34, you had compassion of me and my bonds, took joyfully spoiling your goods. Uh, this thing, so the, the author has some familiarity with them because he knows how they got saved, the circumstances surrounding their salvation. Okay, we, we at least know that. And prison was the present setting for the author. 
Okay, we, we know that from uh, chapter 13, verses 18 and 19, uh, just simply a statement there that's referring to the bonds that is had uh, by this individual. I beseech you rather to do this that I may be restored to you sooner. Uh, the idea there that, yes, he is in prison. Yeah. So you go through all this and you go, okay, those are the only markers we have. So when you come right down to it, you have about five names that as you read through commentaries where people go, well, it could be this one, it could be this one. And I discount several of them. There's one that you know, says that, you know, we were talking today, you know, Luke, and it's like, eh, Luke was a, a Greek. You know, this is all about Hebrew traditions and sacrifices and whatever else. I don't think it's Luke. Uh, there's some that think uh, a guy by the name of Clement wrote this. And it's like, okay. But the, the top three are these. First one is this, several choices uh, regularly given. The most frequent suggestion has been Paul. Okay? Paul describes himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. If you want an individual that knew everything about the Hebrew religion and everything to go along with it and everything in the Old Testament, it would be him. Okay? Uh, he would know this. Uh, familiar sacrifice, ceremonies, and priests. The word structure of the book is not what is normally seen written by Paul. Now, I will say there's a reason for this. We'll talk about this in a second. All the stuff that we have written by Paul is a letter. This isn't a letter. Okay? Uh, This isn't a letter. This is a different style, and we'll uh, talk about that in a second. So uh, if you go, it's the Apostle Paul, but it's not like his normal writing. Well, his other ones are letters to specific groups of people, and he's, you know, this is different. Okay, there's a different purpose behind this uh, writing that's here. Others have suggested Barnabas. Okay, this is the traditional view in some regions. It's a very strong traditional view in some regions of the world that they go, this is written by Barnabas. Um, he would have been a Levite, which would mean that he would have been connected to the sacrifices in the temple, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and all, or the temple, and all the things that would go along with it. Uh, and he would have had some connections to Timothy. On the first missionary journey, Barnabas was there when he would have gotten saved. Problem is, is that Barnabas didn't go on the second missionary journey when Timothy started traveling with. You go, what happened? Well, Barnabas went to Cyprus for a rather long period of time. Um, so yes, he might have known Timothy, but I don't know that my own convincing that you could say him making the statement you know about Timothy being released in prison and that that there is that much connection with Barnabas but there are some that go with this because it is a traditional thought process in certain regions of the world that he was the one that wrote this and so you kind of have to go okay why is that the case there might be something to it possibly not I don't really go with this one Uh, some have suggested Apollos Okay, Paulus, as we find him in Acts chapter uh, 18, coming in and only knowing of uh, John the Baptist and what went on with him. And uh, as he came into the synagogue there, he began to preach. He was a mighty orator, uh, or is an eloquent speaker. He was a mighty in the scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament scriptures. That's how it describes him. As you, you listened last week, you would have heard. The only time that's ever described that someone's mighty in the Scriptures. 
Um, he was trained in Alexandria. And you go, that's in Egypt. But Alexandria had a very large population of Jews. It was a center of learning in the, um, the New Testament times. Uh, you even have a famous uh, semi theologian type character, but he's not really saved, a guy by the name of uh, Philo that uh, has all sorts of writings. He's from Alexandria. Uh, it was a place of uh, where a lot of Jews were at, a lot of education. Um, and I tend to, and as we talk along here, you have to remember that he is an eloquent speaker, and he's mighty in the scriptures, and when we talk about what this book is, okay, it's not a letter, in the sense of a letter, it could possibly be him. But I have problems with the fact that it doesn't seem like he ever traveled with Timothy. He would have known Timothy, but I don't think he traveled with Timothy. So you have these three individuals. I will tell you right up front, I tend to lean to the fact that this is the Apostle Paul writing. Um but these other two have merit, and when we get to heaven, we'll find out, okay? I mean, it, it's, it's, that's kind of where we're at with this, but that's the reasoning that you're here. You say, what are the main readers of this book? Well, um, main readers are Hebrews, okay? For years, I didn't know what that was. You know, I first, you know, three, four, five, six years old, and you're singing the books of the Bible, and he bruised James. And there was always, who was, who was bruising James? Who's the he there? And, and then you realize, well, Hebrews. Well, why, why is it called Hebrews? And I didn't know what Hebrews was, and, you know, I knew who Jews were, but I had no idea who Hebrews were. And then finally you're like, oh, okay. Um, and the book's just simply titled because it's written for Jewish believers. Much of uh, use is uh, made of the Old Testament, with which the Jews have been extremely familiar uh, no location can be determined for this group of Jewish believers. The only thing that we can figure out is that as you read the uh, end of verse uh, 24, at the very end of the thing, it says, Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. And in the Greek, it's not really clear if it's they of Italy salute you or salute the ones in Italy. So Rome's got some connection with this, but we don't know if it's the body of uh, Jews that are there or it's being written from Italy. I tend to think that it's probably being written from Rome uh, if Paul's talking about imprisonment. Um, yeah, so not, not that, but that's the only thing that we have on that. So Still kind of a, a you know, mysterious book from different aspects of this. The time written, and I realized this after I printed all these things out that I said the only indicator, and I actually have two. So I already recognize that there's a flaw in my reasoning here, okay? The only indicator of, and boy, oh boy, that's, yeah. The only indicator of when this book was written is the mention of all the temple activities. It's not describing it in the past tense, Okay, it does describe activities in the past tense, but it's not saying, you know, we no longer have the temple. The temple is a shadow of things to come, the things in heaven. So it's not suggesting the fact that the temple has been wiped out. So this has to be written before AD 70. Because in AD 70, the Romans come in, 
tear this thing apart brick by brick to get all the gold that they can out of the building. Uh, And uh, so it has to be written by this tragedy. Also, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 indicate that the readers had heard the gospel from individuals who had seen Christ. Okay? Uh, It says this, and I'll just read the the statement there in Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, uh, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Okay, so you're, you're having people that, you know, going, you, you heard these people and it was confirmed to you by ones who actually saw Christ. So you're talking probably a 20, 30 year time period after Christ left. I think that Christ uh, went back to heaven about 30 AD. That's kind of my guess uh, because I think Christ was born 4 BC because that's when Herod the Great died. You say, how can Christ be before? It's, okay, bad, bad calendar uh, by whoever it was, Gregorian or Justinian or whoever it was calendar-wise. But you're looking 30 years, 20, 30 years. So it's probably, uh, I would say, if it's during the Roman imprisonment, this is written about 60, 61, 62 AD, but don't know. Those are the only two things we can go on. Now, the structure of the book, okay, here's, here's where you just need to kind of stop for a second and realize what's going on in the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews, if you've read through it, is not the easiest book to comprehend what's going on. Admittedly. But once you figure out what the structure is, then you're going, oh, okay, this now makes sense. Paul acknowledges that, you know, this, this looks like a doctrinal statement, has some statements of challenge, which we'll talk about these uh, statements, um, and closes like a letter. He's got this closing statement like a letter, but it, it, there's no opening statement. So what is it? Well, Paul calls this, in, in Hebrews 13, verse 22, uh, a word of exhortation, a word of challenge. And with that being the case, this is not in the format of a letter, but a series of sermons or messages from the Old Testament. Okay, we're going to go here in a second, and you're just going to see that, okay, the apostle, or, well, the writer of Hebrews, I'll probably say Paul multiple times here this evening, um, what he does is he takes a passage from the Old Testament and starts talking about it, and he's, he's applying something from that passage, or explaining something from that passage, and he gets done with that, and he goes to another passage from the Old Testament and explains the significance of that, especially in relation to Christ, and all the things that he's going to be pulling are, are going to be important in explaining why Christ is, I'm going to let you in on this, is better than certain things. Okay? Each section has an Old Testament passage that is expounded for the readers. Here's the arrangement of the book. Okay? It's, okay, and we'll stop, step back here for a second. Remember the book of Genesis isn't 50 chapters according to Moses. It's actually 11, but it's 10 times where you have, says this, these are the generations of. And all of a sudden you go through, and then all of a sudden when you see that statement again, these are the generations of. Okay? Uh, realize that our verse arrangements and our chapter arrangements are something uh, created about, uh, well, the verses about 500 years ago, chapters about 1,000 years ago. 
Our Bible was written, you know, 2,000 years ago. So um, you do have an arrangement here where the Apostle Paul writing this is going, okay, I'm giving you a certain passage of Scripture, and then you're going to work our way through this and see what it has to do with Christ and go to another passage that then explains something about Christ, and then another Old Testament passage, and we'll talk about that, and then we'll go to, and he's just going through, and he's, he's basically opening up the Old Testament Scriptures and going, okay, you as Jews know the Old Testament Scriptures, and I want you to see that these passages are pointing to Christ or explaining why certain things aren't important anymore, like sacrifices or the temple or other things. How, how could Christ be a priest? Okay, I mean, all of these things. So you start off Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, 4. He expounds several psalms. As you go through, there are multiple quotes of different psalms. Um, you know, you look at verse number 8 of chapter 1, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of um, thy kingdom. That's that marriage passage, Psalms 45, verses 6 and 7. Um, and there's other psalms that he quotes. He quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the one where you talk about the Davidic covenant, where I'm going to have somebody in your line, David, It's going to rule over the nation. And then Deuteronomy 32, which... Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. It's the last thing that he does. It's the last statements of Moses that he makes. So it's his final words. And there's a quote from this. And what's going on here is that this section, and you may want to write this off the side because we're not going to go through detail and look at all of Hebrews. I'm I'm wanting you to get set up and arranged here. But in this section, what he's arguing for is that Christ is so much better than angels. Okay, that he's better than the angels and that he is, um, and you go, well, why is that important? Well, angels to them were very important. Um, and so you're going, okay, if he's greater than the angels, there's only one that's greater than the angels, and who's that? God. So right from the start, you're going, Christ is God. And then all of a sudden, you go to the next passage where it's, it's expounding Psalm 8, 4 through 6. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, but hast given him uh, dominion. Oh, boy. This is what happens when you try and quote it from memory. Um, Verse 7, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did sit him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he's going to expound upon this. And you go, okay, so what we have here is that this Christ is also man, and he's the best of men. Because he's the one who's going to be crowned over all creation. Man was supposed to be responsible for creation. Didn't happen. You have to have someone come along who's a human being who then rules over creation. And so you read this and you go, oh, well, he's proving the fact that Jesus is man, but he's a man who's going to rule. So right from the start, there's these Old Testament passages of Scripture that he's going. Uh, Hebrews 3, 1, uh, 3, 1 through 4, 13 uh, is a little bit harder to figure out what's going on, but what he's doing is that he is going through and he is quoting a passage of Scripture, uh, Psalm 95, 7 through 11, that's talking about the nation of Israel, how it rejected Moses' leadership 
And basically there's challenges here where he's saying, today is the day of salvation. Don't put this off like the the nation of Israel. They didn't find rest. You say they didn't find rest. They didn't enter the promised land because they missed out on what they were supposed to be doing. They missed out on Moses who was kind of like, well, God, because he was speaking for God. They ignored him. And what you get in this passage is that wait a second, this one that is Christ is greater even than, you think about who in their society would be the most important person. I mean, Jews would, Jews would if you asked, if you went around and you took a poll in the Jewish culture and you'd say, well, who's the most important person? You know, we do this in the United States. You know, who's the you know, best American, the most famous one, or the most important one? People are like, well, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, you know, these type of things. They would say either Moses Abraham or David? And in this passage, what he's simply saying is this, okay, this one, Christ, is better than Moses. He's greater than Moses. And if the nation of Israel didn't pay attention to Moses and they had all these consequences and they didn't enter into the rest, well, if you don't pay attention to this one Christ, you're really not going to enter into your rest. Okay, you ignore him. So, it's, it's using this passage, Psalm 95, to deal with this. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14, 7 through 28. Uh, it simply is quoted this way. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's a very short psalm. It's only six verses long. Um, the first part's talking about sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemy thy footstools, you know, these type of things. This passage is going to simply say this, is that Jesus is better than the priesthood and the high priest. And it answers the question on how he could be a priest. See, what happened with Melchizedek, Melchizedek, as you read through the passage there, was a priest because he offered sacrifices to the Most High God. You go, who's Melchizedek? Well, he's this mysterious guy that after... Uh, Abraham goes and rescues Lot from these, these kings that came and captured him. Uh, he goes by the city called Salem, or we might say Shalem. And if you took the normal title that was in front of it, it'd be Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem. This guy comes out, Melchizedek, he offers sacrifices, and what Abraham, Abraham does is that he pays tithes to him. Okay, it's not that this man gives Abraham something. Abraham pays tithes to him. This one who's offering sacrifices to God, and the argument goes this way. This one is a greater priest than Levi. You go, why? Because Levi wasn't born yet. In fact, Levi's 400 years down the line, and his great-grandfather is paying tithes to this one priest named Melchizedek. So the Jews would say, oh, no, no, Jesus, in order to be a great high priest and this type of thing, has to be in the line of Levi. And what you're going to have in this section is, thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You're not a after the order of Levi. Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. Thus, he can be a priest. So this is Paul taking this verse here and expounding on this for a very lengthy amount of time, because this is probably the argument that many Jewish individuals were getting from their family saying, you need the priests, you need the sacrifices, and 
okay, Jesus couldn't be a priest. Okay? And what Paul does is answers that. Okay? Hebrews 8, 1 through 10, 18 expounds Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Now that is the, new, or the Old Testament passage referring to the new covenant where God is going to put a new heart into individuals. He's going to change their heart uh, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And it's a promise that God is going to do this for the nation of Israel someday. And what the whole passage there is dealing with is that, okay, here you have a covenant that was made with Moses that all these people are trying to follow in Jewish culture. And okay, Moses was given this, the nation of Israel followed after this covenant and the like, but what Paul's going to argue is that Jesus Christ is the author and the sealer and the guarantor of this new covenant that has better things than the old covenant? You know, if you, the, 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 if you think about the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, if you kept it, God said, I'll let you stay in the land. Well, with the new covenant, you've got the ability to be in the presence of God. You say, is that a better deal? Yeah. To be in the heavenly land? Mm-hmm. So, he, he spends a lot of time dealing with this new covenant that is promised, and so Christ is the, the guarantor of this new covenant. And he expounds this passage from Jeremiah and goes through all of this. Then you have uh, Hebrews 10, 19-31, and expounds several passages from Deuteronomy uh, and the like, and as you go through, it, it doesn't seem to be going in any specific direction as you're, you're reading through it, but basically you're, you're having an, another explanation of the fact that the Old Testament sacrifices and all of these things don't mean anything uh, without Christ. He is what all those things were pointing to. Uh, those things would mean nothing if there wasn't something that was coming later. And so the passage of Deuteronomy 17, uh, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 is used there. Now, here's the one that you have to you know, kind of take in, and it's not so much expounding, it's applying. He takes a passage of Scripture, and it's Hebrews, or Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 3 and 4, but it's the statement that we're familiar with, and this is why I lean to Paul being the, the author of this, is because Paul liked this passage. Habakkuk 2 says this, the just shall live by faith. Now in other passages he's saying this, okay, these individuals are saved, have a right position because they have faith. What Paul is going to do in this passage when he starts off there is he's going to say the just, the ones justified who are right with God are ones who live out their lives by faith. You see it displayed in their life. They're living by faith. And so that starts off in, in Hebrews 10 verse 32. We you know, don't have that one section that we always remember. Hebrews chapter 11. Oh, that's the hall of faith. I remember that. But that section really starts right here because he's quoting this, this passage here and going, okay, let me tell you this, that people 
that are suffering and go through difficulty show that they love their God and that they're sold out for him by continuing in faith to serve him. What's the issue for these Jews, these Hebrews, is that the family's pressuring them to say, okay, give up this, this faith you have. They're suffering persecution, they're suffering difficulty, and they're being told, give up. And what you suddenly have is this whole cloud of witnesses. Okay, this is what you have in, in Hebrews chapter 12. But you have this whole cloud of witnesses of individuals who lived their life by faith. And guess what? It didn't always turn out with, you know, and they lived happily ever after in this life. Because you get to the end of Hebrews chapter 11 and some people are being sawn asunder and they live in caves and they're wandering from place to place and you're going, well, they lived a life of faith. Shouldn't they, you know, get a nice car and a good house and this type of thing? And, And you're going, no, sometimes people live a life of faith and they serve God and they do it even in the worst of circumstances. So I I want you to just take a look at Hebrews chapter 12 here because Hebrews 12 is where it, you know, is closing out the application here. He's going to just live by faith and you have all these witnesses and, and understand this, okay? It's not that, you know, there's all these people looking over the battlements of heaven going, go! Okay, no, it's saying there's a great cloud of witnesses. You've got all these people that have gone before you. It's like you looking at their exploits and going, wait, that, that, that person lived my faith and that person lived my faith and this is that whole cloud of witnesses okay, that did this. But look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Wherefore, seeing also we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, or the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. He gives you the one last one to look to. Okay, you might go, wow, Abraham, and, and okay, Moses, okay, and all of these characters. These are great characters. He says, and all those clouds of witnesses, why don't you focus on one? The author and finisher, the one who started your salvation, the one who finished it, who actually went through suffering, even unto the shedding of blood. And you go, well, that's faith. You know, we we talk about faith. A person who lives by faith is what? Faithful? Here you got one who's faithful, even though he suffers persecution. And he did it because he was bringing you salvation. So you ought to look to him. And so in this section, you have this application of Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the just shall live by faith. Those that are followers of God that live for him will continue in faith. They'll be faithful, as we might uh, put it. Now, Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 29 is an exposition of uh, Exodus chapter 19 and 20, where it's just simply talking about uh, Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments that they, you know, were able to see all sorts of glorious things there at Mount Sinai, but we've come to a greater, okay, a greater display of God's power than what happened at Mount Sinai. You see this in Christ. 
I mean, that was God coming down there, but you did actually have God come down. Jesus Christ was here, and he did all sorts of signs and wonders. So uh, you have this, but don't turn against him because that'll be a looking for of judgment. Just like the nation of Israel turned against what they got in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, this revelation of God and his very 10 words that he gave, and they ignored it. And he says, don't, don't miss out on this. You can still have all this revelation of God and still turn your back on him. And uh, so it's a warning passage. And then Hebrews 13, it's like uh, the Apostle Paul there suddenly just takes a whole bunch of different passages from the Old Testament. And it's not so much that he's proving a point anymore. His main point, he's now just simply, I think he has a number of things in mind that he knows to the congregation there and just simply saying, okay, here's this Old Testament passage and remind you of this Old Testament passage and I remind you of this Old Testament passage, you know, for, for you to follow, for you to do. I mean, you think about this uh, as um, one passage there. Yeah, verse 5, let your conversation or your manner of life be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You go, where is that coming from? Uh, As you look through the scriptures, uh, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Anybody know? There are several passages that could come from, yeah. Joshua being one of them. So after all of that, you can then come back and go, okay, so what is this book about? It's about this, okay? Since the audience was Jewish, they would have had been, have been familiar with the passages, and it reinforced the overall message of the book. What's the overall message of the book? Okay? Okay? I'm just going to stop here for a second. The other thing that is controversial as you go through the book of Hebrews is that there are a number of warning passages. And when you read those warning passages, it does seem in some of those cases as you read through it that there's the suggestion that you could lose your salvation. I'm telling you as a pastor, when it comes to people going, I have a question about a passage of Scripture, normally I'm sitting there going, hmm, okay, I wonder which one from Hebrews they're going to ask me about. Because they're going to go, well, you know, it it sounds like you can lose your salvation. Um, Let's look at at the Hebrews 6 one. Okay, I just want you to read it. I'm not going to give you any explanation detailed this evening, but I'm just going to say, okay, you read this and read this as an individual. It's going, okay, I'm reading through this sincerely and whatever, and then all of a sudden I get this. Okay? Uh, Hebrews 6, verse 1, it says there, this, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go into perfection, not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of doctrine of baptism, laying on the hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Uh, this will we do if God permit. And he's going, okay, we don't need to lay that foundation. You understand this, but we're going to go and talk about Melchizedek, which is kind of a more difficult one we're going to talk about. But then this, okay, verse 4. For it is impossible... For those who were once enlightened 
and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Whoa, whoa, okay, so it sounds like here, if someone decides that they're going to turn their back on these things that they've had, that there's no hope for them of ever coming back to God. Now, I I will base also this, and sometime when we go through the book of Hebrews, I will give you great detail on this, but the fact is, as you look through the scriptures, a person who's saved is not going to lose their salvation. But what Paul is warning is people who think they're saved, think they're in that category, and now they're beginning to contemplate, well, I can turn my back on Christ and this type of thing. He's not saying, oh, that's okay, you can come back anytime. He's going, you better be careful because you may not be saved. You, you may not have grasped everything that you're supposed to when it came to your salvation, and what you're now doing is going back to those old things that you were in, and now you never come back. You know, God is the one who works people to repentance. He does work them over through the Holy Spirit, and it may be they get to a point where God goes, hmm, not working with you anymore. He says that in the Gospels. There are certain ones who their time of repentance is over with. So you have five passages in there that are ones that people are just like, you know, they read it and they they really begin to wring their hands. They're going, you know, can I lose my salvation? And I'm going, well, no, you can't lose your salvation if Christ is the basis of your faith, if that's who you're trusting in and this. But, But you had people here that were you know, had gotten some of the gospel and had been a part of some of the activities that went there and saw some of the things that went on, and it may have been in their heart they're not truly saved individuals. But, so I say this, when it comes to the book of Hebrews, he's writing this because he's afraid people will leave Christ. And he's got the warnings in here to say, don't leave him. Now that leads us to the theme It's this, the Jews reading this book would have faced a great deal of pressure from friends and family to turn back to the Old Testament ceremonies and traditions. You need to come back, Uh, the family, I can't believe you left, you know, the religion of the family, okay, and some of you have experienced that. You know, your whole family and great-grandparents were in this religion, and now you've gone and follow after this, this Christ, and you've really gotten fanatical about him, okay? The Jews had this kind of pressure, they would be pressed to turn away from Christ. The author wrote to help these Jewish believers understand that Christ was better than anything found in the Old Testament. Okay? In fact, he's what the Old Testament is pointing to. Now, that word better, as you go through and you, when you read the book of Hebrews, at one time you ought to go through and just every time you see the word better, mark it. Because it's it's there. Um, you go through, he is better than any man, angel, Moses, tabernacle, high priest, sacrifice, covenant, promise, earthly home, and goods. The word better appears 13 times in this book. 
okay? So you get through and you're like, okay, there's something better than all of this. Oh, it's Christ. Oh, it's Christ again. It's Christ again. Christ is better than all of these things. So a Jew reading this has now got all the arguments he needs to say, wait a second, I gave all this up because Christ is better than all of these things. Why would I want to go back to those things when they're not, well, the better thing, the best thing? And so you find that word throughout, and so that's the theme. If you were to you know, preach a series on this, go through the book of Hebrews, you, you would have something along the line that Christ is better. Christ is better than anything. So don't leave him. Don't abandon him. Don't go away from him uh, because there's no hope outside of him. Now, the book wants one to consider Christ in comparison to everything else. He is the one upon which our salvations rest. rest. He is the one who started, brought, and finished our salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith. So described, the author is the idea of beginner, and he's the one who completes it, and he does everything in between. And so as you go through that, a person reading this, especially a Jew, after reading all these Old Testament passages and being convinced by the, the preaching of passage after passage, passage after another passage uh, that why would I want anything else but Christ? So um, it's a very good book, but I think it took me a little while for myself to realize that this was a series of expositional statements of Old Testament passages, and then you're like, okay, he's, he's spending, here's this passage, explain it. Okay, next passage, explain it, and he's just kind of laying these things out uh, for Jews that would have accepted the Old Testament scriptures as the scriptures and, um, and be able to convince them. So, a valuable book to have, and it's good for Gentiles to read because uh, we get convinced of the fact that Christ is better uh, after reading the whole of the Old Testament also. So, Lord, we thank you and for Christ. Without him, we would be without hope. But he's taken care of all that we need uh, to be individuals to have uh, the blessing of being in your presence for eternity. Uh, Lord, help us never be uh, to the point where we're at the possibility of giving up Christ, whether it be to pressure or circumstances that are crushing us, that we would not give up Christ. And uh, there are many that we can look to and see that there have been occasions in their life where they have given up Christ. Individuals that have gone out and witnessed to others and and gave testimony uh, and did wonderful things that now no longer have anything to do with Him. So Lord, uh, help us to, to realize that we're without hope, without Christ in this world. He's better than anything else. Lord, we thank you for what he's done in his name. We praise you. Amen.